you'll open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be reading just two verses, if you'll stand with me. We'll be reading Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Read along with me. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourself, it is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Short passage, but may we have ears to hear this passage. and May God add his blessing to it. Please have a seat. So if there's a, a common thread that you find in most world religions, it's this idea that your actions, your works, are what ultimately will save you, or what ultimately will redeem you. Works-based salvation is such a pervasive idea. It's a very tempting idea. It makes sense to us in such a way that we can understand how it would seep into the Roman Catholic Church over the centuries. really gradually started to infiltrate there and started to pull that church away from the truth of the Bible. Rome's focus on works really spread to every facet of your life, if you lived 500 years ago and the only church in town was the Roman Catholic Church, this is how you would live. You'd live a works-based life. You did good acts to earn divine rewards. You're, you're putting that, that money in, in, the, in the pot and God would bless you somehow. You uh, worked off your sins through the act of penance. You would go to church. You would pay alms. You would participate in the sacraments. Obey the commandments as a way to merit your salvation. And this is kind of this never-ending treadmill of works that went on in the church so that people would just never come to the end of it, never be fully sure that they were doing just good enough to get on God's good side and to eventually go to heaven. Then we had the 16th century when the Reformers came along. And the Reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, and all the rest, what they did is they took the Bible and they actually started to read it. And they, they went, wait a minute. Right here in the Bible, it says we are saved by faith alone. Not by faith and a whole ton of works. And so they, they came along and they smashed a corrupted ideology to pieces. And the Reformation then kind of refined this. They developed five key statements, five principles, what we call the, the five solas. The five, that means only. Uh, if, you, if you don't know your Latin. The, the solas, these principles that the Catholic Church did not hold. And the five key principles were that Scripture alone was the highest authority in our life. That we were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Jesus Christ alone, and to God alone be all glory and honor. And two of these five principles, two of the five solas, those key principles of the Reformation, we can find right here in our passage today, clearly summed up in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. In fact, this passage is one of the most famous of the Bible. It's one of those I tell everybody, you need to memorize these verses. It has been called the single greatest statement of the gospel that Paul ever wrote. The single greatest statement of the gospel. And he's clearly communicating to us exactly how we are to be saved. So let's look at it today. It's a really exciting verse. But before we look at how we are to be saved, we need to see how we are not saved. We need to eliminate the false teaching that kind of pulls us 
away from the truth that seduces us and gets us off course. And the big lie that we tell ourselves is that in order to be saved, we can earn a spot in heaven somehow through our works, through what we're doing, by doing enough good things in our life. And it's very common to hear that. I mean, we see that all over the place in our culture today. If you ever encounter somebody who says, well, I, I believe that there is a God. You know, this vague belief in God, a God somewhere up there. And usually they'll, they'll go on to have this thought in their head, this, this lifestyle that says, well, I believe that there's a God. And there's this assumption that if I do more good works than bad works, then I'm doing okay and I've earned a spot in heaven, if there is a heaven. They, these kind of people figure that God is grading on a curve. I always loved it when my professors graded on a curve, because if I was doing really bad, I might squeak through if the rest of the class does really bad. So, you know, you look around going, okay, well, I'm not doing great in my life, but all these other people are kind of messing up too, so if God's grading on a curve, I might get in. You might hear people say things like, well, we're only human, or God, lo- God knows I'm not perfect, but he loves me anyway. This is this kind of thinking along a workspaced mentality. We even see this back in the Bible. You remember back in Luke 18, when Jesus is telling this parable of the two ways people pray, and he tells the parable of, of the Pharisees who goes into the temple court and he starts praying this very grand prayer. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like these other people, these uh, robbers, these evildoers, these adulterers, or even that tax collector over there. You remember that when that guy prays that way? That's, that's this kind of thinking. He's saying, I, my works are better than all these other guys' works. So God, I thank you that I'm better than that. I thank you that I'm going to heaven because I've earned it. That's the underlying subtext there. Yeah, Paul here in this verse allows for absolutely no wiggle room. There's no gray area for us to stand on saying, my works can save me. He says right here in verse 9 that you are saved not by works. Very important to look at this. Your personal virtues, as good as they are, you're lovely people, we admire you. Your personal virtues, your charitable deeds, your reputation have no say, no sway in whether or not you are saved. That's apart from that. Because of that, Paul says you have no grounds to boast. You can't be like that Pharisee standing up there going, look at how great I am. You have no grounds to boast about your salvation on on what you've done for it. And here's the thing. You don't want it to be that way. You really don't. When God gave us the law in the Old Testament, He wasn't doing it. He wasn't giving it to you as if the Ten Commandments were a subway punch card. And if you just happened to punch off all ten and followed all ten of those commandments, then you'd go to heaven. Because absolutely nobody in the Old Testament was able to do that. That was Jesus' whole point when he was talking with that that young ruler. He goes, what do I need to do to be saved? And he says, well, have you obeyed the commandments? Yes, I've obeyed. You know, punch, 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 all ten. And Jesus is thinking, no, you haven't. When God gave you the law, it wasn't to show you a path to your salvation. He was holding up his high standards to you and saying, there is absolutely no way you can live up to these Ten Commandments, never mind all the rest of my laws. 
He was holding up to your standards so it would reflect back to you your failing, your sin, your inadequacy. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. That was the purpose of the law. And in the book of Galatians, Paul still finds himself arguing with Christians in church that can't get past that, can't get past this mentality where they thought they can earn a place to heaven. And so Paul asks in Galatians 3, he says, he says, what you're doing here, you're ignoring the cross and you're setting yourself up for a huge amount of failure. He says in Galatians 3, I would like to learn just one thing from you. He's writing to them. Did you receive the Spirit by the work, by, uh, I'm sorry, let me say that again. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you have heard? For all who rely on the works of the law are still under a curse. He says there's two ways here. Did you get your salvation by obeying perfectly the Ten Commandments or by believing in Jesus? Which one of those? Because if, you, if you're on the side of the law, you're still under a curse. And then in Romans 3, Paul says, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, it's through the law that we become conscious of our own sin. The law makes you conscious of how much you sin, but it is not how you are saved. Let me put it another way. Say there's a plane that goes down in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and only three people make it out. And there are different amounts of swimming variety. There's the first guy. He's just one of those guys who never really learned to swim. He's barely getting his head above the water. He just dog paddles. The second guy, he's an average swimmer. He's one of us. He gets in the pool. He may do a couple backstrokes and call himself an accomplished swimmer. But the third guy is an Olympic gold medal swimmer. And so they said, well, we can't stay out here. There's nothing to do. We should, we should start swimming toward land. And so they do. But within the first couple minutes, the dog paddle guy, he disappears under the, the water, and they, he's never seen again. Second guy, the average swimmer, one of us, he makes it about an hour hour until he becomes so exhausted that he slips under the waves. But the third guy, the Olympic swimmer, he's so good, he manages to make it 20 miles in a single day. And at the end of the day, he's huffing and he's puffing, but he stops and he's treading water there. And he looks back at the 20 miles he's gone. And he's looked at how the other two guys, they've already drowned. And he's thinking, I'm doing pretty good for myself. Doing pretty good for myself. But here's the thing. The nearest coastline is 500 miles away. There's just no way he's going to make it. Absolutely no way on his own. The best of the world's best swimmers couldn't do that. That's what we're talking about when it comes to trying to do enough good works to earn your own salvation. You might think you're doing good. You might look at other people and think comparatively, comparatively, I'm doing better than you know, the average most people. But the problem is the distance that you need to go is impossibly far. You can't do it on your own. It's exhausting, it's futile, and it's not needed. It's absolutely not needed. So the first step to grace is that we need to shut down our pride. And we need to foster a sense of humility in us. A humility that understands we can't do it by ourselves. To understand what, how, how much we're really in over our heads when it comes, in, 
comes in terms of our sin. A humility that reaches up to God with two simple words. Help me. Help me. So, if your works have no impact on your salvation, according to Ephesians 2, what does? Paul makes it, I mean, this is a very clear verse. He makes it very easy for us to understand, even if it's kind of hard for us to accept. He says right here, for it is by grace that you've been saved. God, out of his great mercy and his passionate love for you, he provided a means of salvation that wasn't based on you, but on himself. He did all the work. He put all the pain and the suffering and the work on Jesus Christ on the cross. He did the heavy lifting so that he was able to turn around and hold out his hands. And in his hands was forgiveness, was peace, was redemption, was eternal life. And he holds it out to you and he says, here you go. It's from me to you. Take it. It's a free gift. Well, then we get a little suspicious of that. Because nothing's ever really free, is it? When we think of free gifts, you know, somebody says, I want to give you a free gift today. And we go, well, what's the catch? Right? You know, that's our first instinct is to be really suspicious about it. Several years ago, in the before times, when before we had kids, Joy and I had the opportunity to get a free vacation. And we were told, well, all you have to do is come to this a morning meeting, and they're going to pitch to you a timeshare. And if we could sit through this meeting, we'd be given a free vacation. I don't know if you can see it, but the free was coming in such quotes as uh, we saw, we knew exactly what would happen. If we showed up at that meeting, we would be getting the pressure sales of a lifetime. We would be guilted. They would use every tactic in the book. It would be so profoundly uncomfortable. So we decided we're just not going to do it. That free gift wasn't so free, and we weren't willing to pay the price. So that's why when we pause at God's gift of free grace, we, we might think, well, that that raises some suspicion, or maybe it, it stings our pride. Maybe we go, well, I still want to earn my salvation. I still want to be part of this. I still want to be so good that maybe I can just do part of it, a fraction of it. And so our pride or our suspicion hold us back from accepting that gift. Well, it really comes down to this. Are you willing to take God's word or not? Many of us remember the famous preacher Billy Graham. Back before he died, he said one year he was traveling through the south. He was driving, and the, you know, the cops can be kind of aggressive down there. And they pulled him over for speeding. And Billy Graham said, I had to go to the, the court to pay the fine, and he made his case to the judge, and the judge said, well, you were clearly speeding. So you have, this fine has to be paid. But I'll tell you what, Mr. Graham, I know you, I know your work. I'm going to pay your fine for you. This is from the judge. I want, it, I want that judge, by the way. I want the judge who pays my fine. And the judge said this. He said, I'm going to pay your fine, and, and then I want to take you out for a steak dinner afterwards. You don't turn that down. So Billy Graham went out with this man and had a wonderful steak dinner. And afterward, Billy said this. He said, that is exactly how God treats repentant sinners. He pays their fine and then adds a giant blessing on top of it. That's what grace is. Maybe sounds too good to be true. Billy could have turned that down. He could have said, no, I want to pay my own fine. I'll take myself out to dinner. 
thank you very much. But instead, he accepted that gift of grace because he didn't let his stubbornness get in the way. Don't let your stubbornness get in the way of accepting God's gift of grace. So in this short passage, we've come to understand that our salvation is not based on our works alone, but it is accomplished by grace. But there's just one piece missing in that puzzle. How do we access that grace? How do we reach out and grab it? How, what is, what's the process there? And that's something that Paul also addresses here. He says that we are saved through faith. Grace is the means by which we are saved, but faith is how we access it, how we grab onto that, faith, onto that grace. You need both grace and faith for your salvation to happen. But what is faith? If you ask a bunch of people, you took a survey of a lot of people, and you ask them, what is faith? You might get a lot of different answers. And it's really important for us to have a biblical faith for us to, because I've heard some people say, well, faith, it's kind of like having a, a gut feeling, a feeling you're doing all right, or a sense of optimism, or just, you know, kind of sensing that God's on your side. But that's not really what a biblical faith is. A lot of people, if you ask them, you say, well, what is faith? They'll tell you, well, it's belief. It's not false, but I would posit this, that faith is belief plus trust. So if you ever have to have a test, somebody asks you what's faith, belief plus trust. I believe that is the biblical statement of faith right there. Here's an example of that. In the 1800s, there was a French acrobat by the name of Charles Bloden. He kind of made a name for himself here by crossing Niagara Falls several times on a tightrope. And every time he'd do it, he would just, you know, he was kind of a, a showman. So he would come up with crazier stunts. One time he brought a stove out with him. This was back when you could do this sort of thing. He brought a stove out with him to the middle above Niagara Falls and he cooked himself an omelet. Best omelet he ever had. But another time, he got an assistant to climb up on his back and he walked his assistant the 1,100 feet from shore to shore above Niagara Falls. And when he got to the other side, his assistant got back down off his back, and he asked the crowd that was applauding him, he said, who believes that I can cross with somebody on my back? And everybody raised their hand, of course we believe that you could do it. We just saw you do it. And he said, oh, great. Who wants the next trip? <laughs> There's a lot of silence after that question. Faith is belief plus trust. Faith isn't just when we believe in God, but when we trust the Lord to carry our souls on Him. And it's not something that just spontaneously happens in your life, by the way. You remember, back at the beginning of this chapter, we spent a whole week talking about how we were spiritually dead. The spiritually dead don't just spontaneously develop faith in their life. That's not something the dead have the ability to do. Rather, God can and does give us faith, grow a faith in us, and develop that in our lives so that we can access grace. If your Bibles are still open, look at verse 8 again, because this is pretty important. Paul talks about a gift here. 
And it's very easy to make the assumption that the gift he's talking about is just grace. But it's not the way the grammar is here. He's talking that this gift that God's giving you is grace and faith. That God's both giving you your salvation and also the means to access that salvation. That faith is part of this gift package. You, you believe in God because God gives you the ability to believe in God. Now that might wrinkle your brain a little bit. You might not agree with that statement. That really does kind of put us at odds with probably what a lot of churches say. But that's what Paul is saying here. A salvation based on God's grace rather than our works changes our relationship with God. Say, I'm growing this faith in you that's going to help you believe in me more. And then you can reach out and grab that grace because I'm giving it to you. And then your life forever after that will be changed. We owe God everything. And yet, He demands from us nothing for that gift of grace. We obey Him out of our love from that gift of grace. We look every day and we are just astounded anew at what God has done for us. And we go, God, I love you so much that you have done so much for me. I just want to do something back for you. So you're doing those works not because they save you, not because a church is telling you, you have to do this or else God will be mad at you. You're doing it because you're loving a God who loved you so greatly in the first place. Sure, you'll never be able to do enough good works to pay God back, but that's not the point. The point is that you've put on a new life. You're now doing things for Christ that matter for all eternity. And all because of grace. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we look at this great gift here in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And we are convicted of how little we have to do with it and how much is all You. All Your love. All Your caring. All Your compassion upon us. Lord, it's just such a great, overwhelming gift. Thank You for giving us that gift of faith that grows in us this desire to get to know You. That makes the Scriptures come alive to us. Put in our heart a desire to get to know you more, that convict us of our sin, and then rejoice when we are saved, when we latch on to that gift of grace. Lord, help us never to stop being amazed at how great grace is in our life. Help us to always wake up in the morning and just smile and go, today, it's going to be a good day, because today I am saved by grace. It's all you, God. All you. Thank you. In your name. Amen.